listen, my family's great. I mean, there's not a single person in my family that I couldn't turn to at like two in the morning if I needed something. Ooh, that's that's wonderful. But what uh, I thought I remember there's some conflict, or you hadn't talked to your brother in a while. Oh yeah, my brother Stewart. He's Stewart. not really invited to family gatherings anymore after mm -hmm. he said that Vince Lombardi was right. better than Ditka. I mean, it's ridiculous. So you haven't talked to your brother because of his opinion of a football coach. Okay. Um, who who else is on your 2 a.m. support? Oh, my mom. She's mom. great. Okay. My sister Sarah is nice, and uh, my sister Stacy. She's. She's worse than Stewart. I mean, she married a Packers fan. This is ridiculous. Oh, yeah, terrible. Okay, uh, so you don't speak to two of your siblings. Are there are there just the three of you, or are there are there more than three siblings? It's just three, but we've got okay. uh, a lot of cousins too, and they're like siblings. Mm -hmm. You know, I except for Uncle Bob's kids, I don't, I don't talk to them. Okay, so you don't talk to two of your siblings and two of your cousins. Yeah. Um, who else do you not talk to? Uh, well, I mean, I. Uncle Dave, Aunt Margaret, we don't talk to them anymore after they sold the season tickets back in 99 instead of keeping them in the family. Uh, Uncle Ricky's nice. I like him. Okay, so you feel like they should have given the season tickets to you? Oh, well, it's family four. We had dibs. I mean, you got to give it to the family. It's unbelievable. Ah, have you ever considered talking to them and telling them how you feel about the tickets? Well, no, why would I do that? <laughs> well, it's been nearly 20 years of unresolved conflict. You can tell them how you feel. Yeah, that wouldn't work. What else you got? And then uh, there was the year that my parents canceled Christmas. Uh, I'm the oldest of five kids. We were not getting along uh, per their expectations, and so they announced that uh, we had disappointed them and they were not going to give us any presents. Now, I'm misleading you a little bit because you might think that this happened, you know, 30 years ago when we were 8, 10, 12. Uh, this actually happened about 10 years ago. <laughs> we were all married. We all had uh, children of our own, stepchildren. And uh, so it was a little bit more people involved. It was a little bit more complicated. But there was uh, a rift and some people went this way and others went this way. And it got complicated. And... At some point, it became obvious that um, we were not going to all be able to be together in the same room. And my parents said, well, we're not coming up for that. Like, we're not coming up for something that is divided. Uh, they retired uh, down south. And so they said, well, we don't think your kids should be punished, so we're sending presents to them. Um, but we don't want you to give us anything. Uh, we, are, we are deeply disappointed uh, the one thing we would like that we would have expected is that you would find ways to get along, and if that's not going to happen, we're not going to pretend like things are, are fine. I'd love you to think that that only has happened once in my family, because um, Sherry and I were not particularly involved in that specific little dust-up, but uh, there have been many others, such as the time that um, our oldest son was trying to select a college and for reasons that are not uh, all that important, it became a very tense situation over the months. And when it was finally done, and finally a school had been selected and a deposit had been made, Sherry called a little family meeting and she said, okay, I think we all have reasons to be embarrassed by the way we have acted over the last few months. And just for the record, I don't think she had any reasons to be embarrassed, and our uh, other two boys didn't have any reason to be embarrassed. This was directed at 
two of us, and me in particular, I had, I had failed to remember one of the principal parenting uh, rules, and that is, if you're sideways with one of your children, it's important that one of you remembers to act like an adult. The fact of the matter is, uh, world peace is a utopian fantasy for most parents, because forget the Middle East and forget that Congress, both sides of the aisle, would have to act in civil manners. For there to be world peace, families have to get along, and there's often a lot of challenges with that. So today we are thinking uh, in this Blind Spot series about conflict, and the premise is that how we deal with conflict uh, is often a blind spot, that, that our habits, our patterns, our practices, sort of our default assumptions often contribute to the problems that we have in ways that we don't even see or realize. So this series is based out of the middle chapters of Genesis, and uh, we've been looking in particular at Jacob. So week one, we looked a little bit at Saul, and last week we looked a little bit at Jacob's twin brother Esau, uh, who didn't look out very far, and I say that's one of our cultural blind spots. We tend not to think ahead like we should. But, but week two, and today again, we're looking at Jacob, and in particular, we're now looking at what is arguably Jacob's signature issue, and that is conflict. We're told that uh, before he was born, he wasn't getting along with his twin brother. And then uh, he did, after he's born, he doesn't get along with his dad. And then he doesn't get along with his father-in-law. And he doesn't get along with his wives. And he doesn't get along with his kids. And his kids take after him. And they don't get along with each other. And then there's this note that he actually doesn't get along with God. There's this wrestling match that occurs. So uh, conflict is a big issue for Jacob. Now I realize that most of you are experts on conflict. You, after all, have been in some conflicts. You have watched TV shows about conflict. You have, uh, you've thought about conflict and you've read articles in doctor's offices, in, in general interest magazines about conflict. I mean, and they say, you know, there's, there's always the article about how to lose belly fat and something about the Kardashians. And then there's something about conflict, almost every magazine. And the general interest magazines have one spin, and marriage and family and parenting magazines have another, and Harvard and Inc. have a different spin, and, and uh, psychology today has a little bit different spin. But everybody, everybody is always talking about conflict. And the truth is, the advice offered in those magazines is often very good. It says things like, you should listen more than you talk. And you should, you should avoid getting angry, and you should seek win-win solutions. I mean, it offers, it offers good common sense counsel. Uh, the challenge is, although we know what we ought to do, often in the heat of the moment, our stress level goes up, and we don't think clearly. We're not acting as we should. We tend to fall back into default patterns that are not always good. We've got some blind spots, and the conflict plays out. And so uh, I, I, I want to push us a little bit today uh, on this topic of conflict. Now, I am assuming that you know all of the basics, uh, in part because they're in the magazines, but in part because they're also uh, in, in even a cursory reading of this book. So the Bible is 
a book about conflict. Uh, Genesis chapters 1 and 2, there's no conflict. In Revelation chapter 21 and 22, there's no conflict. So first two chapters, last two chapters, no conflict. Everything in between, lots of conflict. And uh, it's, it's, there's conflict between families, there's conflict within families, there's conflict between ethnic groups, there's conflict within ethnic groups, there's conflict between nations. Jesus is always sideways with the Pharisees. Paul is causing riots and getting thrown in prison. I mean, there's, there's, a, lot of, there's a lot of conflict in the Bible. And, uh, and some of it is within the church, and it's very disappointing. Perhaps the, the big signature, most disappointing conflict we find about in Scripture occurs in the middle of the book of Acts. So Acts, Acts of the Apostles is the, is the book that follows the Gospels, so it, it picks up the, right after Christ's death, resurrection, and ascension, we get 30 years of the church and what happens. And, and about halfway through the book of Acts, Paul and Barnabas and some others have a, a little powwow meeting in Jerusalem. So they, uh, Paul and Barnabas have launched as missionaries. And they have gone out and they have been talking to people about Christ. They've been telling them that Jesus is, is God's son, that, that God loves them, that there's a way through Christ for them to have their sins forgiven and to move forward. And people are responding and churches are getting planted and it's hard. They, they, get, they get beat up, they get chased out of town, they end up causing, there's all kinds of challenges that they face. But they're seeing great success, and they come back for a little, uh, little powwow, a little celebration in Antioch, the church that had sent them out. And uh, some people come into to town, and they're complaining about Paul and Barnabas because they think that the offer, the way that, that Paul and Barnabas are extending the offer of God's love, is wrong. So they're, they're Judaizers. That meant that they thought that if a Gentile wanted to become a Christian, they first had to become a Jew, and they had to adopt Jewish customs and Jewish diet and Jewish holidays and Jewish dress code and all of that. And Paul and, and, and Barnabas are saying, no, 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 that, that's not at all what, what God is offering to us. So it's decided that this little disagreement needs to go to Jerusalem. And so they all gather in Jerusalem, and, and James is there, and Peter, and everybody. They have this little powwow to sort of work through this first contentious issue uh, in the church over doctrine. And they have this meeting, and the meeting goes really well. They pray together, they talk, they debate. It's tense for a while, but then they come to a resolution, and everything is great. And then... Paul and Barnabas are getting ready to head back out onto the mission field to plant more churches, and they have a falling out. It's not, a, it's, it's not over a particularly big doctrinal issue, but they have a falling out, and, um, and they go their separate ways. And best we can tell, um, they never get back together. So at this moment, the church has two missionaries, and they can't get along with each other. And that is, I think... Deeply disappointing to hear that that, that that is how blind we can be to our blind spots. So, you should know that the Bible says a lot about conflict. And all the things that I said are in the magazines we find in here. So, we're told, for instance, in, uh, in Romans, uh, we're told that we need to 
uh, do everything we can to be at peace with all people. And we're told in James 1 that we should listen more than we talk and that we should be slow to anger. And we're told in Ephesians 4 that we should go after conflict, not let the sun go down on our anger. And we're told in the book of Proverbs that we should stay away from contentious people. All the kind of 101 conflict management principles that, that you would expect in an HR seminar we get in the Bible. But the Bible goes a lot further than that. There's a, there's a whole another layer of ideas and practices and insights about conflict because uh, conflict is not one size fits all and it's complex and there's, there's more going on. And so, for instance, we're told that our real challenges, our real battle, our real conflict is not against flesh and blood. It's against rulers and authorities and powers uh, of darkness in high places. And so we, we're told that. We're told that we are... Uh, we are to proactively be peacemakers, right? That we're not simply to avoid conflict, but, but that we are to uh, aggressively try and promote peace. And that part of that means the way we, we treat those and the way we think about those that we disagree with. So we are not, uh, we're not to demonize other people. We're not to think evil of them. In fact, we are to love them. We are to love our enemies, which I always say does not mean that we're supposed to turn our enemies into friends. Because when we hear that, then we think, well, I'm going to go try and persuade my enemy to think like I do and to, to like what I like and to vote the way I want to vote because then, then we can be friends. No, it says we're to be the kinds of people who treat people we don't get along with as if they're our friends. So, so we get this counsel, and we, we get a lot about the fact that we're not to paper over differences, but that we're seeking the, the shalom of God. We're, we're not to just look askance at injustices. We're to, we're to, we're to, we're to right the world. We're to seek a, a conflict-free, robust, holistic peace. So there's a lot in Scripture about this. In light of this series, and in light of Jacob, and in light of the whole idea of blind spots, I want to I center in... Uh, on an event that happens in Jacob's life. And it happens in Genesis 32. So if you have a Bible and you want to follow along, uh, it is in Genesis 32. I need to set it up for you so you understand what we're reading. Um, what's happening is that Jacob is leaving Laban and this land that he has lived in for 25 years, and he is heading back home. And he's going to meet up again with Esau, his twin, who he has not seen since he cheated him and fled. Remember, he flees. He, he gets the blessing. He gets, the, he gets everything from, from Esau. And then he realizes that Esau is going to kill him as soon as their dad dies. And so he leaves. And he goes to this faraway land. And there he, he starts to work for um, a distant relative of his, and he marries two of this guy's daughters, and then he stays longer, and he, he amasses a lot of wealth. And so he's now a rich person. He's got 11 sons. He's got two wives. He's got servants. He's got all kinds of other things going on. And so that's what's, what's, what's been happening. But he's had a falling out because he doesn't get along with anybody forever. So he has a falling out with Laban. And he has left Laban. He's heading back home. Now, you've got to understand, it's really bad with Laban. So there's this, there's this agreement that they've reached called the Covenant of Mizpah. 
And it says, may the Lord watch between you and me while we're apart. And uh, when I was a college pastor, uh, people used to, uh, there, there was a, a particular sort of necklace that you could buy. And it had written on a little, uh, on a little piece of um, metal there, it had, a, it's, it had this verse, may the Lord watch between, between us while we're apart. And then it sort of jaggedly had been ripped apart, and one person would wear one. This is sort of a pre-engagement thing. One, you know, the guy would wear one half, and the girl would wear one half. And I didn't have the heart to tell him for a while, and eventually I thought, I probably need to say this. Okay, this is not actually a nice thing, like while we're apart during the summer, you know, may God watch over you. This is Jacob and Laban saying, may the Lord watch over you while we're apart, because if I see you again, I'm going to kill you. Um, uh, because, because I hate you and everybody that looks like you, and so you had better stay away from me. So that's what he's leaving behind. He is fleeing Laban. He gets news while he is traveling that Esau is coming to meet him. There's a homecoming awaiting. And oh, by the way, Esau is bringing 400 armed men with him. So this guy wants to kill him if he sees him again. The other guy is coming at him with 400 armed men. And that is what is the setup for the passage that I am going to read. Genesis chapter 32, beginning with verse 22. The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the break of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, for I have seen the face of God, uh, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose up. Uh, as he passed Peniel, but limping because of his hip. So I, um, for a, a couple months, I've had three days this past week blocked out to go um, to this cabin to, to try and work on a project that I started during sabbatical. And uh, I, I went to this cabin up in Wisconsin, and I was working, set out to work on this project, but I ended up not doing any of that work. I was doing other things, and I kept coming back to this passage. And I think, this, is the, this has got to be one of the oddest, strangest passages in the Bible. What is going on here? And just for the record, there's all kinds of interpretations about what's going on here. And so there's people that say this, this is a metaphor for, for prayer, wrestling with God. And others say this is a metaphor around doubt. And others say this is how we need to, even in the middle of the night, we need to demand God's blessing. And, and there's a famous sermon written by a German theologian during the Battle of Stalingrad, wondering whether or not God is good. There's all kinds of things that are, that are written about this thing. 
So that aside, it seems to me there are two very obvious things that we ought to be taking away from it. So just to be sure you understand, what Jacob has just done that evening is he has divided everything that he has and he's sent it ahead of him. So he actually, there's more to the story than we read, and then also there's stuff about this in Hosea chapter 12, but what, what Jacob has done is he's taken uh, a lot of his wealth, which is basically livestock. That's how you had money. You didn't have you know, paper currency. You had livestock. And so he's taken hundreds uh, of sheep and goats and, and, and other uh, animals, and he has sent them ahead of him in waves to Esau. So he's got a servant traveling with, you know, a hundred sheep and, and they're, they move towards Esau. And when they get to Esau and his party, they say, this is a gift to you, Esau, from your brother, your humble servant, Jacob, who's following behind. And then 15 minutes later, here comes the next wave of, of cattle. And you know, 15 minutes later, here comes more. And, and so he's, he's doing what he can to sort of soften up Esau. Jacob is never without a plan. Whether it's a good plan or not, Jacob always has a plan. So then he takes what he's got left and he splits them in two. He sends one wife and everything else he's got this direction, and he sends the other wife and everything else he's got this direction. And he says, if one of them gets wiped out, I've still got the other. And now he's left alone. And it's dark, and he's, he's at this place, he's alone, and he gets jumped from behind and gets, gets put in this vice grip. And he is going to wrestle for hours with this person who's jumped him. Now, I, I, I had a brief wrestling career, very brief. I remember three things, it was in middle school. One, I remember the smell of the mat because my face was getting ground into it pretty consistently. <laughs> Two, I remember a Thanksgiving uh, holiday where I was trying to lose four pounds over Thanksgiving break. I weighed. 86 pounds. I needed to get down to 82 pounds. I did, it didn't happen, but I remember not eating like I wanted to over Thanksgiving. And three, I remember how incredibly exhausting wrestling is. I mean, wrestling matches can be four or five minutes, six minutes in high school, and it's, it, you're, you're tireder than any other six minutes. It's incredible. So how Jacob is wrestling, how these guys are wrestling for an hour, I have no idea. But it says they're wrestling for hours. And you've got to think that initially Jacob is, is guessing that when he gets jumped from behind, well, this is Esau. I mean, this is my brother. And, and then he thinks, well, why would Esau come by himself? He's bringing 400 men. This doesn't make sense. And then you might think, well, this is just a, this is just a thug. This is a robber. I'm, I'm, I'm getting jumped. I'm, I'm about to get killed. But it doesn't kill him. And as time goes on, there are some clues as to who this is. Uh, one of the clues that we see is um, that this person he's wrestling is able to dislocate his leg with a simple touch. Okay? Uh, another clue is as daybreak is coming, this person says to him, you need to let go of me because the sun is rising. So instantly we now realize Something has, has happened during this wrestling match. It initially, this man had a hold of Jacob. Now Jacob is clutching onto this man, and the man says, you got to let go of me because the sun is coming up. Well, that's sort of code for you can't see me and live, right? 
And, and then uh, when Jacob asks, who are you? Uh, tell me your name. Uh, the man says, why, why are you asking that question? You know who I am. Now, different passages re- report that, that Jacob is wrestling with an angel of the Lord, and here Jacob is going to identify this person as God, and so we're not given a lot to go on, but, but many theologians would say, well, this is likely the pre-incarnate Christ. So remember, Jesus is from eternity past, In the beginning was the Word, Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were created through Christ. Jesus is eternal. There never was a moment that Jesus wasn't God. It's at Christmas, it's at the Incarnation, it's in Bethlehem that he enters time and space, takes on a body while remaining fully God, he becomes fully man at the Incarnation. Before the Incarnation, we think Jesus makes several cameo appearances in the Old Testament. And so it's likely that this is Jesus. We're not told that specifically, but it's likely that this is Jesus. So uh, Jacob is wrestling with God. Now, as I've said, interpretations on this abound. Um, There's some that want to make a lot about the fact that they crossed the river Jabek and that that's some sort of play on the name of Jacob. And then there's people that are talking a lot about how Jacob is demanding a blessing. He was demanding a blessing of his dad. He he didn't get satisfied. Now he's demanding a blessing of God. All kinds of things happen. I I think there's two things for us in this series that are are pretty clear. Number one, um, conflict is an opportunity to understand ourselves better. As unpleasant as it is, conflict is an opportunity to see some things about ourselves that we might not be able to see otherwise. So, Jacob asks God to bless him. Right? That's his, you know, I'm not going to let go until you bless me. Bless me. And what is the next thing that we read? God says, well, what is your name? Now, when God asks a question, it's not because he doesn't know the answer. It's because he's trying to direct our attention to the answer or make it obvious to us. Secondly, you have to understand that in this culture, the Hebrew culture, especially at that time, names had a lot of meaning. They were sort of prescriptive. And, and so Jacob, uh, his name means heel grabber, right, clutcher, sort of taking things that are not necessarily yours and not letting go. And ironically, that's what he's doing at that moment, right? He's, he's clasped onto, uh, onto God and he won't let go. But the name also means uh, deceiver. As a matter of fact, the root word here that gets translated Jacob is the word that's used in Jeremiah. There's this famous passage, the heart is deceitful above all things. Who can, who can understand it, right? Well, it sort of says the heart is Jacob above all things. So the name is, means deceiver and it's heel grabber and it's not, it's not, a, it's not a, a, a good name at that point. And so what God in essence forces Jacob to do is to face himself. So who are you, right? Because it's, it's more than just what are you called? Who are you? And Jacob has got to come out with this line to say, I am a deceiver. I am a clutcher. I am a deceptive person. That's who I have been. And so, um, look, 
part of the way God can help us <laughs> is to help us see ourselves. Who am I? The second thing that is critical here is to see the context in which we're called to see ourselves. And, and that sort of pivots around a few things as it relates to Jacob. One of them is, is just the fact that, for us, it's just the fact that God is using Jacob. I mean, I, I'm, I'm asking you, I'm encouraging you, pushing you to, to, to look deeper into who you are and to see these things. I want to do this in the context of the grace that is extended to us, the context in which God allows us to look at ourselves. And so one of the things that I want to just point out to you is God is using and interacting with and blessing Jacob. The man is bad, right? He has is, he is cheated his brother. He has deceived his dying, blind, bedridden father. He, is, he, is, he fights with everybody around him, right? He's not a nice guy. And so uh, we can be encouraged. When I read through the Bible and I read that God is using Peter, who denies Christ, I'm encouraged. When I read through the Bible and read that God is using Daniel, who's, who's pretty righteous, I'm not encouraged because I'm going, yeah, no, I'm, I want more Peter. I want more Jacob. I, I, want, I want more of these. I want, Paul was killing, was involved in killing people. I mean, David, yes, there's somebody. I, I like these very deeply flawed people that God is using because we're deeply flawed. And it's just another reminder. God, God, is not, God is not using the qualified. Right? He's qualifying and blessing and coming alongside very dysfunctional, broken, selfish people. The second way that this sort of comes out is, is the name that God gives to Jacob. So the name that God has had, or excuse me, the name that Jacob has had is, means deceiver and liar and slimy and all of this. And so God says, what is your name? And Jacob says, my name is Jacob. And he says, yes, I'm going to change your name. I'm going I'm to give you the name Israel. Now, I've got to be careful here because uh, a member of my, my mom, I, it doesn't matter. My mom uh, is at a church down outside of Little Rock, <clears throat> and they got a new pastor. And so I asked her a while back, I said, what do you what do you think of the new pastor? She goes, well, votes out. She goes, there's a lot of people not very happy. He gives a lot of Hebrew grammar lessons in his sermons. <laughs> so I have a Hebrew grammar lesson for us right now. So ever so brief. The, uh, the, the name Israel is a combination of two words. El, E-L, is, is sort of a generic Hebrew name for God. So you hear El Shaddai, El Elyon, right? These are, these are it's El, that, that's the God part. So in Hebrew, there's often another word that's describing who God is, God the protector, God the provider, whatever. But El, E-L, is, in Hebrew is God. So you've got that in Israel, the last two letters. So the first word that gets pushed onto this is, for, for um, our purposes, I'll say Sarah. And it means to contend. So, is Sarah L is putting it together? We get this the, the contending 
God or contending with God? Now that becomes the question. We have a subject or an object here going on. Is, is, is Israel that we contend with God? A little bit, because you've got to look at it in context. But a bigger point, I think, is that God contends for us. God contends for us. God is gracious to us. I want you to understand, in order to see ourselves, and I think we've got to see ourselves more clearly, and it's a process of ongoing discovery, we've got to lower our guard. And the only way to lower our guard is to realize, I'm safe. I'm safe. I'm loved, not because I'm lovable. I'm not lovable. I'm broken, like Jacob. But God is amazing. God reaches down. God reaches out. He gives, uh, he, he gives us this story in which God is wrestling with and contending for even Jacob. So uh, I, I wrote out this verse a couple years ago and tacked it uh, in in my, in my office at home, tacked it on the wall so I look at it in the morning. And uh, I, I look at it several times a week, just sort of during a, trying to be a quiet, reflective time. And the verse is uh, Psalm 143.8, and it says, let the, let the morning bring me word of your unfailing love. For I have put my trust in you. Show me the way I should go, for to you I entrust my life. It's the first part of this that I, I keep going back to. Let the morning bring me word of your unfailing love. Right? What I need is to know your love. What I need is to know your unqualified love. What I need is more of your character. I need to know that so that I don't have to earn. I don't have to clutch. I don't have to, I don't have to scheme. I can be, you know, I, am, I am loved by God. He knows me. He, he knows everything about me, and he loves me unconditionally because that's who he is, and I am safe in his love. I've got, I've got to get there in order to see my blind spots. I've got to lower my guard in order to see my blind spots. I have to be safe in God's love. So um, there's more to this passage. I mean, uh, if you keep reading about Jacob, it, it, he, he has this change, and on uh, in, in one hand, it's, it's remarkable. God doesn't change his circumstances. God goes to change Jacob, and that's good. But as you keep reading on, you realize that, that it's a little bit of a squandered opportunity because Jacob doesn't, uh, doesn't do everything you'd like, and there's some real sadness as this thing unfolds. Rebecca, his mom, last time we, we read about her, she was you know, telling him to cheat and, and connive with Isaac, and she says, whatever fallout, whatever blame there is for this, I'll bear it. It's the last we hear from her. And it sort of becomes obvious when you're reading about the death of her, of her servant. And so you're reading way, way late in Genesis. You read about the death of Rebecca's servant. And you go, well, that's sort of weird. Why are we being told that? And then you go, wait a minute. What happened to Rebecca? And then you read about the fights that are going to go on in Jacob's family. And you, you see his last words when he's now finally in Egypt after the, the famine has kicked in and he's, he's gone with Joseph and his boys and he's talking to the Pharaoh and he says, my life has been hard, harder than my parents. And you sort of get, mm, Jacob, you didn't really lean into this. You didn't really, 
you didn't really look at yourself. You're not really owning your part of these problems. You're not thankful for all the many blessings, undeserved blessings that are yours. So there's a lot there. I want to encourage you to not be Jacob, right? To not miss the opportunity to lean and rest in God's crazy, radical, unmerited love for you. And, and to lean into that and to allow yourself to see yourself more clearly as a path forward. Father, to that end, we pray, asking that you would um, allow us to have an, sort of an overwhelming sense of grace and your love and your care for us. Help us to rest in that and to be able to see ourselves more clearly that we can move um, more towards Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.